Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Prime Minister Abiy claims he has won the war in Tigray. What is really happening in this critical country? And Congolese President Felix Tshisekedi is set to take over as AU chair. What will his challenges be? Plus, we discuss conducting diplomacy during a pandemic. What are the challenges and opportunities and what will endure in a post-COVID-19 world? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has declared victory in his conflict with the TPLF. Trumpet Abiy Ahmed praised his troops in Ethiopia's parliament on Monday for their victory in the country's northern Tigray region, even as the forces he claims to have defeated said they were still fighting. His soldiers captured Tigray's capital, Mekele, at the weekend, prompting a declaration that a military operation in the region was completed. What is next for this humanitarian, security and political crisis? Joining me to discuss Ethiopia and other topics on our season finale are Alex Rondos, the EU's Special Representative to the Horn of Africa, Sanusha Naidu, a foreign policy analyst at the Institute for Global Dialogue in South Africa, and Susan D. Page, Professor of Practice at the University of Michigan's Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy, as well as the first U.S. Ambassador to South Sudan and a former U.N. Representative to Haiti. Okay, on November 28th, Ethiopian government forces overran Mekele, that's the capital of the Tigray region, prompting Prime Minister Abe to claim that the final stage of the conflict had been completed, and now his focus would be, in quotes, rebuilding the region and providing humanitarian assistance. Of course, it is not that simple. So I was hoping, Alex, you could brief us a little bit on the background of the conflict and then talk through some of the consequences, humanitarian, security, political, and your sense, and you may not be as sanguine as the prime minister, about where we're going with the conflict. And I'll just note for our audience, we're recording this episode on December 9th, and there is positively going to be new developments by the time we release this episode. So, Alex, you're a close observer. What what are you thinking? Well, thanks, Judd. First, it is impossible to really know what's happening. There is a complete blackout of information coming out of that of the region of Tigray. There are real restrictions on who can go in and out. We're therefore the mercy of the various pronouncements of governments, rebels, whoever you want. And I think it's important just to put that there as a, as a caveat on almost anything we're discussing. Uh, the origins of this go back two years but the brief version of it is this is all about the identity of how Ethiopia sees itself, how it will be governed, to what extent we move away from a federal system that is based on ethnic affiliation to one that Prime Minister Abi will, I think, reveal in the fullness of time to what degree it is about a more centralized system creating another version of unity within Ethiopia. I would say there are a couple of things that worry us from the European Union at the moment. First of all, this is a a conflict. It is a war that has been launched with conventional weapons by a government uh, against a region which it considers to be rebellious. 
Second, we are concerned about the degree to which militias representing one particular ethnic group or another have been used to attack Tigray, which takes you away from a policing operation into something that has a deeper, if you will, ethnic component to it. And it's difficult to tell whether this has lit a fuse to something that may spread elsewhere or not. Finally, this has been also internationalized. We've got refugees in Sudan at a time when Sudan is very fragile, and we have increasing evidence that Eritrea has offered all sorts of facilities to the Ethiopian armed forces and may even have its own armed forces fairly deeply involved in this. This is therefore not going to end soon. Where does it leave us now with a humanitarian catastrophe? And I'm, I use those words advisedly. We don't know what's going on, but we do know that the less we know, the greater the problem is likely to be. And that I know from the point of view of the European Union, but I'm sure is shared by others, is, is a profoundly worrying issue. Second, we have clearly got evidence of human rights violations and of atrocities. Who is responsible is something that others will have to judge, but these are real issues because they risk poisoning the, the potential for reconciliation in a country that is so diverse. Finally, we've got a real problem potentially economically. Investors may feel shy that they must shy away from Ethiopia at the moment. There's therefore a real urgent need to rapidly demonstrate, not say, but demonstrate that there is a normalization of the situation in Ethiopia. Thanks, Alex. That was brief but comprehensive. And I share all of your concerns about where this conflict is going. I wrote a piece for CSIS entitled The Battle for McKelly and Its Implications for Ethiopia. In addition to some of the issues that you raised, although I, I didn't mention the economic one, and you're 100% right, I'm also concerned about Abi's project for a more democratic and inclusive state. I worry that regardless of how this resolves, he may have a harder time convincing other regions that he is for an inclusive dialogue. Sanusha, one of the countries that has been engaged in this conflict on the mediation side has been South Africa. President Ramaphosa, in his capacity as the AU chair, appointed a trio of very senior envoys, former South African President Batlante, former Liberian President Sir Leif Johnson, and former Mozambican President Chisano. South Africa also holds the UN Security Council presidency for the month of December. And I guess I'd like to hear from you, what can we expect from South Africa in terms of addressing the challenge in Ethiopia? What would you like them to do, i.e. what more should they be doing? Thank you, Judd. I think you're right. I think you come at a point, I think, where South Africa is, is now is coming to the tail end of its presidency within the UN. And of course, coming to the tail end towards the AU. And both of these are very, very significant positions to be to for the South African government and the Cyril Ramaphosa presidency to be having within its portfolio of international relations positions. Unfortunately, I think the challenge that South Africa faces is whether it can position itself within the momentum within the continent, firstly, in terms of moving forward on this issue with Ethiopia. I think the complexity that Alex has raised about the conflict, the nature of it, the volatility, the uncertainty and the unpredictability of where it's going makes it difficult for South Africa to actually go much deeper than just appointing the envoys. The envoys play a critical role in terms of dealing with 
with the Ethiopian government and hopefully dealing with the Tigray region as well and who are the actors there and, and so forth. But going beyond the state, the level of the state actors, I think this is where South Africa has a bit of difficulty and has challenges. Now, next year, we know that South Africa's chair of the African Union will come to an end. And of course, the next incoming chair is going to be the DRC, another country that is coming in with lots of domestic turmoil and instability. And of course, what South Africa would like to do is probably have some level of continuity. But where does that come from for South Africa? Who are the actors that it needs to speak to in the African continent that can liaise and work with its presidency and as it leaves the UN Security Council? The second issue for me, I think, is very very much what is happening at the domestic level in Ethiopia and the Tigray region has very important implications for what is happening in South Africa's domestic political landscape. You know, the ANC is not in the place where it wants to be. There's all kinds of controversies, political issues, questions of governance, inefficiencies, the whole question of the tender issue of around state capture, fraud, etc. All of this kind of raises questions about how does South Africa go forward in pronouncing and saying, to other countries, this is what needs to be done for stability. This is what needs to be done for humanitarian, democratic rights and, and, and civil liberties, when in, in its own kind of domestic setting, it's limping in these, in these very critical spaces. And I think for South Africa, it's about, again, re-evaluating which countries are within its, its purview to be able to talk to, whether it's Rwanda or whether it's the, the regional authorities. And the level at which the state-to-state -state engagement takes place has to look beyond just the the actors that you are seeing. And I think here is where having much more grassroots knowledge, having much more kind of information from the ground, from your missions and other actors and talking to other actors, including international actors, will be critical for South Africa. You know, Sanusa, the point that you raise about South Africa's credibility is something obviously that those of us in the United States, you know, are thinking through as well. How do you engage when some of these challenges are endemic to your own country? And maybe that's why we're seeing some of the schizophrenia from South Africa, there was a statement from the perm rep when he, you know, assumed the presidency where he said that Ethiopia would be a priority. But in essentially the first session chaired by South Africa on silencing the guns, Ethiopia was not truly part of the conversation. And I, I, I'm hopeful that they will put more of a focus on it as we go forward this month, because we, you know, desperately need that engagement. But Susan, you probably have more experience than most working in conflict zones in, in South Sudan and working in post-conflict or post-humanitarian crisis countries such as Haiti. It seems like most of the international community now is in agreement about addressing human rights abuses, pressing for the lift of, of media blackout, ensuring humanitarian access, curbing some of the misinformation and hate speech. But how do you actually do that right now, especially if we reflect on Alex's comment that we just don't have great access and visibility to what's happening? What would be your recommendations? Yeah, thanks very much. I think Alex really laid it out very well. And the real problem is exactly what you say is how do you how do you practice this kind of diplomacy and call out the human rights violations when there is a blackout where there isn't a lot of information. I, I think that one of the bigger problems is that the international community is also quite divided. And as we see, the, the European Union had called for a ceasefire. Parts of the African Union are going in and trying to uh, mediate, requesting meetings. 
But the Ethiopian government, uh, Abiy's government, has steadfastly refused any real opportunities to to mediate. They want to go go it alone, and as you stated at the beginning, they've already declared victory, and it's time to move on. Of course, you know the fact that there are these human rights, at least certainly alleged massive human rights violations on on both sides, and that you have other players in the region clearly being involved with Eritrea. Then you think about where the drones are coming from. That involves the United Arab Emirates and others risks bringing in a lot of other actors that are even outside of the Horn of Africa region. So I think part of this is we have to use the leverage that we have, whatever those limits might be, with the neighboring countries. So this is where Sudan becomes important because, as we all know, that's where most of the refugees are flowing to. But in the case of the United States, we don't even have an ambassador in Sudan. We also don't have an ambassador in South Sudan. So who do we rely on? And I think that especially in the United States, as a new administration comes in, there has to be a real rethinking of what our strategy should be, not just in Africa, but with the Red Sea area that overlaps between the interests of the individual African states, the interests of the United States, the European Union, as well as the Middle East, and how these different players are acting and what they see as being in their own interests. And then lastly, I would just add, I think we have to start recognizing our limitations. We, in the past, often talk about, well, you know, we have all of this leverage, we've given all of this aid and assistance. And certainly, Prime Minister Abiy has made it clear that he doesn't want or need outside money. This is an internal action that he is taking to restore law and order. I'm not saying that we have to agree with that, but we have to recognize the limitations. And if the African Union can be thwarted, in its own backyard, in the headquarters of the AU, which is in Addis Ababa, with all of the diplomats there, it's going to be very challenging to hold people to account, especially in a region that is not known for prosecuting human rights violations. Susan, those are really wise recommendations. First, to broaden the group of countries and actors that are involved in this. I couldn't agree more with how do we rethink uh, or at least be honest about our, our leverage and do a more clear-eyed appraisal so that we can be more effective. And I think that's going to come up as we talk about the second topic for today, which is on the next African Union chair, Felix Chitsakedi. The African Union predominantly provides a forum for debate and for collaboration. It's a continental plenary where issues facing the whole of Africa can be discussed and from which formal cooperation can be achieved. While the African Union does not yet play as much of a role in its citizens' lives as the European Union does for its citizens, the AU has united an entire continent. In February 2021, Felix Sakedi will become the new AU chair. He will 
replace Cyril Ramaphosa. This is historically a one-term job, and he's got a very long list. We just talked about the Ethiopian conflict. He's also got to deal with the pandemic. He's going to want to try to advance the Continental Free Trade Agreement. He's in the midst of a very serious political contest right now with his predecessor, Joseph Kabila. We talked a little bit about this on our episode with Jason Stearns. But let's start with a bigger picture. Sanusha, can you talk first about Cyril Ramaphosa's tenure? How did you rate that? And then we can move into what you think Chitsukedi should prioritize after the transition. I think the presidency of Sir Ramaphosa as AU chair, it was a very mixed reaction, did well in terms of the COVID-19, the pandemic, uh, getting the, 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 co- the, the cohesiveness together around African leaders, together with the AU commission chair, Faki, and, and moving forward in that way, working with the WHO. And I think on that score, it was really a cohesive set of issues, proposals going forward and using the position of chairpersonship to move the continent forward around what needs to be done in addressing the pandemic. I think there were a lot of issues where Sir Ramaphosa could have done much better. He could have basically been much more emphatic around the question of debt sustainability. It came up a lot in the year and particularly under the presidency of Ramaphosa because also bearing in mind that South Africa sits at the G20. And that means that the question of countries like Zambia, which was the first country that actually defaulted under a, COVID, under a pandemic with its debt, became a critical dimension for the South African government as well, because it means that handing over to the incoming chair of the AU, a lot of unsettled and unanswered questions and unaddressed issues that need to be taken forward. And I think the challenge for any incoming chair and any outgoing chair is where the continuity lies. I think the third issue for me were the number of conflicts that I think where South Africa tried to push this agenda of silencing the guns by 2020 was a very disheartening approach, in my opinion, because it didn't seem as if you were able to do that. I don't mean it literally, but I just think that having a kind of handle on the situation, both in Southern Africa and across the region and across the continent. And I just listened to the president five days ago talk about the African Continental Free Trade Agreement and where they're going to be instrumentalizing it and moving forward in terms of ratifying the instruments and implementing the instruments. I think it's easy to talk about it at a theoretical level, but it's very difficult when you have these conflicts. You have to go back to what are the root causes. And I think this is where South Africa may have missed an opportunity to think about some of the transformational questions that need to be answered in Africa, more specifically closer to home in Southern Africa, in terms of what's going wrong with the structural transformation agenda. It comes back, Judd, to the question of South Africa also having to deal with the fact that it doesn't have that leverage that Susan spoke about in her comments. So South Africa's failing in that way, in my opinion. I think that the question of peace and security is going to be key. But also, I think South Africa needs to think about its role in the AU after its chairpersonship. Where does it want to be? How does it want to play? What kind of human resources and and people that they want to put there that can push the agenda forward in terms of continuity? I guess I agree with some of the specific criticisms you made. And I also agree that there has been some good work done by South Africa. I guess Where I start, and I'm hoping Susan can help me explain this or elaborate on this, is 
The African Union chair has some formal powers, but not many. Uh, most of it's informal. And I actually, when I look at it in the aggregate, I think South Africa has been one of the stronger AU chairs in the organization's history. And I'm particularly thankful that Ramaphosa headed it during this crisis because I don't think that we would have seen such a robust approach, you know, even if his predecessor al-Sisi had still been in charge. But Susan, since you are acting U.S. ambassador to the African Union, what does our audience need to know about the formal and informal powers of the AU chair? And then how do you navigate this bureaucracy? How does Chitsukedi, you know, be a successful AU chair next year? Yeah, thanks, Judd. I think Sunusha laid out some of the very real challenges that Cyril Ramaphosa or South Africa has has had because he also came in with quite high expectations, which which were perhaps also too high based on where people thought South Africa's standing was. And if you will remember, Ramaphosa was actually in a meeting with al-Sisi to discuss kind of the handover and what the next term would be like for him when he had to cut his visit short and return to South Africa to deal with the ESCOM crisis. So I think we cannot overstate the importance of what's happening at home, even while an individual is being the chairperson of the African Union. So just what people should know is that to a large extent, and you you said this, Judd, the chairperson of the African Union is more ceremonial. The chairperson is elected by the Assembly of Heads of State and Government for a one-year term, and it rotates among the continent's five regions. So there's also some concern about why people elected someone like Tshikedi, who had a very complicated electoral victory. And the chairperson is expected to complete the term without interruption. So even as the chairperson normally rotates among the five regions of the continent, if a country is expected to have elections during what would be the term of the chairperson, they usually don't include that country because they don't know how the elections are going to turn out. What I think is more important really is the commission of the African Union. And it's the commission that really is the executive or kind of the administrative branch. It's akin to the European Commission, not necessarily in terms of its power, but in terms of its functioning. And it consists of a number of commissioners that deal with different areas of policy. And that's where a lot of the important decisions are taken. So that's where it becomes really quite important who are the commissioners. And in, in particular, and Sanusha alluded to this, who is the peace and security commissioner? In terms of the bureaucracy, for those accredited to Ethiopia and to the African Union, it's really important to be aware of who the commissioners are, where their powers are, what their own priorities are. And unfortunately, sometimes, as we saw in the Burundi crisis uh, several years ago, they can make very good decisions and recommendations. But if the heads of state and government vote against it, they really cannot do very much. So it sounds like I'm, I'm just going to pull some threads together that we, we may have to be pretty modest in our expectations for Chitsukedi, in part because he's got a internal domestic 
problem that is quite serious, particularly um, now that he's trying to renegotiate his coalition without Kabila. But as Susan, I think you rightly point out, he doesn't have a lot of powers anyway. And so a lot of our effort really has to be if we want to address the challenges in Ethiopia or northern Mozambique or the Sahel, is continue to do that in hard work, engagement with Faki and with other commissioners. Uh, but I, I think this kind of gets us to a broader question about multilateralism. And it's been a tough, tough four years for multilateralism. I mean, the U.S., of course, has been hostile under President Trump. But I, I do think the challenges are a lot more messy uh, than they were just a couple of years ago. And the nice little bureaucratic boxes that we put together of Africa and, and the Gulf, et cetera, they're, they're just not very effective anymore. And Alex, you are one of the few who are, are really set up to work across these bureaucratic seams. And I, I thought maybe you could help us think through what does the AU, the EU, President-elect Biden need to do to both reinvest in multilateral diplomacy? I know that's a big question, but also how do we get away from just working within these, you know, very compartmentalized sandboxes when the problems don't sort of neatly fit in them? Let me have a crack at this. One, let's understand what is the fate, not just of Africa, but of a much larger global community, if we just ditch multilateralism. It is dog-eat-dog. Dog. There are predators and there are prey. And one of the things that has really worried me about parts of Africa, like the one I have some responsibilities for in the Horn, is that, in fact, in purely historical terms, I feel I'm seeing a new scramble for Africa. It's a scramble for resources, and it's just being done with a more diverse group of actors from outside. How does Africa, how does a region like the Horn of Africa, protect itself and navigate through those shoals? Because a lot of the people who are getting involved have limited understanding and, frankly, even less in interest for the well-being of a region, let alone a continent. And I think I, I just we've got to understand the sheer scale of the challenge right now. Second, I think whether you're the AU or we're all dealing and trying to address the issue of multilateralism, let's make sure we're not drinking dirty old bathwater here. What do I mean by that? One, let's be relevant. Let's grab hold of what matters to citizens. And I'm not talking just about the AU. The European Union has gone through its own convulsions lately. It relates to immigration, the effect of globalization and the like. So this is a political phenomenon, meaning that multilateralism cannot simply assume that it is a good thing, therefore it will be liked. It's got to make itself relevant in the global marketplace. Therefore, what I would be suggesting, and certainly what I argue within the European Union is, we need to be focused on the big issues, but then deliver on them. And what are those? In Africa, it's demography. There's a new generation that's emerging on the political marketplace when 70% of the population is under 30. Just go do the numbers. A whole new generation is emerging. What do they feel they belong to? To what do they feel they have a loyalty to? I think that's a challenge for everyone, and everyone needs to help support that. This next generation is inheriting debt. How is that handled? To whom is the debt owed? How is that negotiated? Third is, let's call it the democracy question. I prefer to speak more about how people feel they participate politically, because that is a universal challenge that we face right now. Whether it's Europe, the United States, 
Africa, Asia, there are different definitions of what it means to belong to a democratic or less than democratic, but at least feel your voice is being heard. Now, this needs to be then broken down and narrowed down so that it actually is deliverable, which brings us full circle. This is what Ethiopia is about. It's about youth who are inheriting a whopping debt, who manages that, and to what extent can they be heard, given that their choice is either to become ethnically intransigent or nationally loyal. These are the huge challenges, and multilateralism's got to take that on board, but be seen to be delivering, not just being a big jamboree of global diplomats traveling around, having fancy meetings, talking about the people, but rarely visiting them and touching their lives. Alex, we need a whole episode to keep working through this. That was really helpful. I'm going to add something to complicate that. And this is the final topic. And it comes from some of our conversations that we've had together, Alex, which is how do you do diplomacy? How do you do multilateral diplomacy during the pandemic? Can't travel, right? A lot of Zoom calls. And so I'd like to spend the rest of the episode thinking through what are the challenges and we can apply that to dealing with Ethiopia specifically or or any of the issues that we, we've talked about today. But what are the challenges? And then, you know, are there things when we see the end of this pandemic that we may want to keep, that we may want to integrate as part of our toolkit? And I thought, Susan, if you could just start us off with giving a baseline of what diplomacy means in a pre-COVID world, you know, how do you build relationships? How do those translate into successful negotiations or agreements or outcomes before we figure out how much the, as the world has been disrupted, just maybe a snapshot of why the interpersonal has been so critical to good diplomacy in the past. Naturally, you would have to put in a nice little trick here. <laughs> we are going through a major change, as you rightly said. This is the first global pandemic that we have faced in, in 100 years. It's obviously worldwide. How we used to do things Alex has just said it, uh, Sunusha has talked about it. It's about meeting people where they are. It's talking to people. It's getting out. It's, of course, protecting and promoting your own country's citizens and businesses. Or if you work for a multilateral institution, what is the image? What are the strengths that you are trying to portray through that organization? And it, it has always been, and I still believe it will remain important to be able to be face-to-face. -face. I think that there is no shortcut for seeing people's reactions in real time, not just across a screen where things can be staged. Oftentimes, a lot of the deals are done while you're in the gym or while you're sharing a meal or doing something informal. And that still needs in-person in-person contact. So I think that we've worked around a lot of issues. And we've also learned that there are skill sets that we didn't necessarily have as diplomats. Because at the very beginning, what did we have to do? We had to offer consular assistance on a massive scale and repatriating people back to their home countries as 
numerous countries closed borders and um, put in place lockdowns and quarantines. So we also had to order equipment and medications, ventilators, masks. How do we do that, again, on a massive scale with very little lead time? So a lot of these were skills that we had but have not had to use on a massive scale except in a major emergency, which obviously this is. So I I hope that we will learn some things, but I also believe that there still will not be a complete substitute for the need to meet people face-to-face. I think that's right. And I'm going to come back to you at the end because I want to keep building on this. But Alex, you're definitely not going to the gym or having a meal, or at least you're not doing it very often and without a mask as you work through some of these really sticky issues in the horn, right? Whether it's the upcoming Somali election, the Ethiopia crisis, the GERD, how have you managed? You know, how have you been able to do it in this last 10 months? Look, there's a paradox in this. We actually spend less time on aeroplanes, which gives us more time to actually do real work. Susan is absolutely right. There is no substitute. If we're talking about diplomacy, you don't do it by writing letters, sending emails, or sitting on Zoom meetings or whatever. So at one one level, it is absolutely essential. If one is to be an effective diplomat, there is absolutely no substitute for building up the level of knowledge, familiarity, with others. It's also building up the awareness because diplomacy is often about work beyond one's own cultural norms and and habits. So that is an absolute given. I think we have discovered that a, a lot of work can be done through Zoom and things. I'm really struck by that. I just simply want to reiterate that when you look at these big meetings, some of the issues that you mentioned that I'm involved in, I believe we may have been able to prevent some things going wrong, or we may have been able to accelerate the way to solutions had we all been more mobile and been able to really move. And Sanusha was talking earlier about President Ramaphosa's role as the chair of the AU, one thing we cannot underestimate is the difficulty when you don't cannot get on an aeroplane, say to another president, I'm coming to see you tomorrow morning, we've got to settle this. And it's all done by telephones and the like. Uh, I don't want to exaggerate the issue, but it has seriously impeded the ability to resolve potential conflicts or to accelerate solutions. I believe that the discussions on the Nile, in my view, could have come to a solution if if there'd been people just sitting in one place for a few weeks and just working with each other. No, that's great. Sanusha, have you seen any countries that are, are doing this well? Or are there issues that you think have fallen through the cracks because we've all been under lockdowns and quarantines? You know, you and I, unlike Alex, are more on the analyst side, just observing. But you know, what have you what has been your impression as as we've been dealing with this pandemic? Thanks, Jed. I have to agree with both Susan and Alex. I think, you know, there has to be some kind of middle ground between the traditional forms of diplomacy and, of course, infusing it with what this kind of pandemic has forced us to do in terms of refocusing 
parts of diplomacy. I think for me, what is what is interesting is looking at the missions that are in South Africa and how they've been relating to the South African government. Is how do you actually put the right people in the right missions? I think that's going to be a key driver for me in going forward is not everybody needs to jump on a plane, but it's those strategic stakeholders like President Ramaphosa who can pop over to Harare and say to Emerson Magagua, you know what, this is not on. This we have have to sort this out because there is a serious crisis here. And it's not just about the fact that there's uh, challenges to democratic governance and change and those issues, but it's also the fact that we are seeing a humanitarian crisis unfold. And I think that kind of connection that takes place between state leaders or between actors is critical. And then there is that middle layer that can actually be the Zoom people, the people that are the uh, are Zooming on different platforms and having those kinds of discussions and dialogues because they can then set up the process for the state actors, for the leaders, for the higher executive to be able to carry out the kinds of connection that takes place. And I think when I look at the Chinese embassy in South Africa, I think they kind of put a very high high ranking individual as ambassador because they know that this is going to be critical for their particular issues around the BRI, the, the Belt Road Initiative, around the questions of their engagement in Southern Africa, but also extending over into the North African and, and the Horn of Africa as well. It's something that we need to think about much more critically in terms of how do we think about a post-COVID world of diplomacy. You know, I've had the same observations, Sanusha, with respect to China. They've been doing a lot of diplomacy on video platforms when they aren't sending doctors to the countries. They're doing classes or facilitating classes online. And I'll just make a contrast. The EU postponed its EU Africa summit. The Indians uh, did the same. Those were both planned for this year. You know, we'll see if the Chinese go through with their FOCAC in Dakar next year. Alex, the pros and cons of Zoom diplomacy and thinking about symmetry in particular, how do you understand the trade-offs? The trade-offs, I think, are fairly straightforward. If a summit is clearly going designed and meant to deliver something that is of strategic significance, then you get together and it is in everyone's interest to show that they will actually get together. There are a lot of other summits which seem to, how can I put it, they lean more to ritual. Uh, and fine, those can be substituted by other, other ways, especially we're talking about in a times of pandemic. But, um, I, I think it's a lot to ask of people. There are real risks involved, but everyone's going to have to find ways of, of somehow arranging meetings that reach a summit level. One of the things that I've noticed, and maybe this uh, gets to your uh, distinction a little bit, Alex, between a strategic engagement versus a more symbolic engagement, it does seem to me that there's a lot we could be doing more on the public diplomacy side, on the public affairs side, through Zoom. If you want to go to a U.S. embassy to have an engagement, you know, at a at an American corner or at the public affairs office. It's getting through lots of security. It's not the most pleasant experience. And so for me, and I'd love to hear, Susan, your thoughts, but for me, one of the things that we should keep for the post-pandemic era is using Zoom as a way to have people-to-people connections that can reach a broader set of folks, but also maybe minimize some of the challenges of getting into these you know, Fortress America embassies, etc. Are there things that you 
think that we should try to incorporate in a post-pandemic diplomatic world? Yeah, thanks, Judd. Public diplomacy has gone through a series, a long series of changes. I mean, even when I was in South Sudan and the war had broken out, I did video messages that could be played over, you know, the radio, battery-operated wind-up radios. For those who had videos, which was not very many people, um, they could watch them, but they were usually just voice messages. So we don't have to stop do using the tools that we did. Where I think that we, where we have created some alliances is in working together through the pandemic or during the pandemic with organizations like the World Health Organization, like WhatsApp, and other platforms where they have been able to put out information in various languages to citizens to tell them about repatriation flights, about what was happening, the statistics, things like that. But what we also have to worry about is the disinformation that comes out of that. We also need to work on debunking the conspiracy theories that rise in any time of uncertainty and crisis. Thanks, Susan. That's really helpful. This closes out our second season for Into Africa. I want to thank our guests today and our listeners throughout the year. We'll be back in early January for our very special season premiere with my favorite East African group, Sati Sal. So until then, we wish you a very happy holidays and a peaceful and prosperous new year. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, and all the best to you all. Thank you. Thank you as well. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.